welcome back to Cyberology, Dakota State University's podcast for all things cyber and technology. I'm Jen Burris. My name is Gabe Midland. And today we will be talking with Dr. Omar El-Gayar about digital transformation. So can you introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, sure. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, my name is Omar Gayar. I'm a professor of information systems at Dakota State. I've been with Dakota State uh, for a little over 20 years now. It's a pleasure to kind of share my thoughts about what digital transformation is all about. Perfect. So why don't we start off by talking about what digital transformation is? Okay, well, um, it's simple, right? So it's all about leveraging technology to make lives better, as simple as that. Now, is this really a new concept? Uh, Not necessarily. So since uh, the use of computers in businesses, I guess that goes back to the 50s, we did have digital transformation. What's really different right now is the amount of data we have, the exponential growth in um, computing power, the connectivity, networks, uh, and then advances in algorithms. So kind of creating the perfect storm for companies, organizations, individuals to leverage technology to improve processes and improve lives. So it's pretty expansive then. It is. And I have to say, it is not just about technology. So it's about people. It's about process. It's about having the right culture, but also influencing and changing that culture. So in a sense, being part of the digital or the information age. Okay. How have you seen that kind of evolve over the years? Well, uh, it did evolve significantly. So, you know, when computers first came into business and government and so forth, they were essentially number crunching machines. So they were, the, the focus was really to automate what we call back-end processes, you know, doing payroll. Uh, the government used it for calculating census. I believe it took like 12 years or whatever, some astronomical uh, time to, to, to do that, and that got reduced uh, using mainframes at the time to a year and a half, which is still a long time. Uh, but uh, back then, that was a, was, was a significant improvement. But then gradually, the evolution or, or the advancement, if you will, in, in technology kind of started moving computers to the front stage. So, so at some point, we started feeling it as consumers and individuals And I would say that came about maybe somewhere in the 90s. I mean, we started feeling it first as PCs, but again, you know, you played some games, you ran some spreadsheets. That's not really much what we're talking about here. But with the internet, with e-commerce that came about, I would say, roughly around late 90s, uh, you started really seeing that notion of digital transformation affecting and impacting everyday's life. You know, think of Amazon and how it transformed how we purchase things and how we shop for things. Think of uh, Netflix and where Blockbuster is now. It's gone, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's that's part of the transformation. And the other term that you hear about is disruption. So these companies, when they came in, they leveraged technology in, in very big ways that it disrupted their industries significantly. And the examples are, you know, are, are plenty, obviously. You know, we hear about Uber, we hear about Airbnb, even weather.com as a, as a, as a company is not necessarily a weather forecasting business. It's, it's, it's really a data company and they leverage data in very unique ways 
as part of their business model and for their survival. Can you talk about some of those unique ways that weather.com leverages some of that data? So they started, obviously, as a weather app, right? So you, you can check the weather, follow the weather and stuff like that. But they're not really making money on that. Even even with the ads that would show up, that was not really enough to, to drive their business model. So, so that's where they started thinking about how can they leverage their access to weather data in very unique ways. And, and one of that is really to influence purchasing decisions. And this particular example has to do with hair care products that uh, doesn't apply to any of us. I was going to say, Omar, maybe (laughs) Jen, but you and I. um. (laughs) So so hair care products for for women, and evidently the kind of product is a function of the weather condition. So, So how the weather would look like could influence what kind of product a woman would purchase. So they teamed up with Procter & Gamble, and they kind of shared that data, if you will. And ultimately, I believe P&G has an app that leverages data from weather.com to influence and provide recommendations for women in terms of what kind of product might be uh, most suited. Wow. Pretty unique, right? Yeah. Pretty innovative. Yeah. Cyberology. You know, you mentioned one thing about how technology has affected all of our lives. I... I was working in peer at the time, freshly out of college, when PCs became more readily available. This was in the mid-80s, mid to latter Mm -hmm. half of the 80s. And one of the interesting arguments for, you know, making a huge investment for state government, buying into technology was, in the long term, we would be not having to hire employees to do a lot of the work that they do now, that with attrition, the technology would take over a lot of those responsibilities and our size of our state employees, public employees would shrink. And of course, that never happened. What happened was, is we were using the technology and we were getting a lot of things done and that left us time to do even more things and, you know, more kinds of people needed to come on board. Technology has really changed how we do things, obviously. But there's people who, unfortunately, um, haven't caught up with the changes or kept up with the changes. How do we make sure that more people are keeping up rather than getting left behind? Let me maybe share, you know, share a comment about your observation Please. your experience in the 80s. So I think that's right on. One of the uh, arguments that you hear often is, technology is taking away jobs. Well, it's, it's, it's not really taking away jobs. It's, you can arguably say it's, it's disrupting jobs. In other words, it's transforming jobs. So some jobs, yes, will become obsolete just the fact because of the existence and the capabilities of the technologies being developed. Looking into like uh, the medical field, the healthcare field, even oh, yeah. so physician jobs, you know, certain specialities are no, lo- or no longer or will no longer be as uh, prevalent as before just because, for example, uh, advances in, in AI and computer vision in particular, you know, radiology, reading of um, uh, X-ray images and stuff like that, or MRIs and stuff like that. But uh, that doesn't mean that, yes, it might be taking away some jobs from some areas, but there also are other jobs that are being created that are needed to essentially facilitate, if you will, 
the adoption of the technology, the creation of the technology, the deployment of the technology, you name it. So even business processes get transformed with technology. And along that transformation, jobs get redefined as well. So so that, that is definitely happening. It obviously happened and you've observed it in the 80s and it happened since then and will continue to happen. So, so the idea that it's technology is threatening, it could be for some, but it's also creating other kind of jobs. And I believe, for example, for us in, in higher education, we have a responsibility to make sure that we, we educate our students for these jobs that may not exist right now, and provide foundation, broadly speaking, not just on the technology, but on the on the business, on the people side, mm-hmm. uh, that will allow them to navigate these jobs as they evolve and uh, as they come through. I just been amazed at uh, when I first began my career, how differently uh, it, it covers the whole spectrum from those who maybe have a limited education all the way up to people who've spent years in graduate school, like the physicians you talked about. Surgeries, for example, now are being handled in many cases by robots, and it's amazing. It's just interesting to me, though, that some people, yeah, I think you're right. It creates a lot of new opportunities, but some people, it's this is the always the way we've done it. This is the way I've always done it. And, yeah, so let, okay. and there's a resistance. I think that was your second question. So let me comment here. So you actually bring another very important element, right, when we talk about technology in an organizational context, an institutional context, um, or even just in everyday life. And, uh, and, and that is change, right? Yes. So when technology comes in, arguably, it is changing or impacting how we do things, okay? Um, So in information systems, there is quite a bit of body of research that talks about technology acceptance. And one of the constructs that come in and out, depending on uh, which model you're looking at it, is attitude, for example. So so things that right up your alley here. And um, that, that could impact. And there are certainly other factors, but the, really the larger picture could also, especially in an organizational context, is culture. When we talk about digital transformation, when we talk about infusion of technology, you do want to have a receptive culture. And in, in many cases, uh, organizations that are able to engage in successful digital transformation initiatives are those that have what we call digital leaders. In other words, leaders with a mindset that is open to exploring new technology and exploring avenues for leveraging that technology to advance their um, uh, organizational interests. Certainly. So, so they do play a role in catalyzing, if you will, a receptive culture to that change. Okay, but then once that happens, the evolution of that is that you have a culture that is now so used to digital technology that they can't live with it. So, in other words, in a sense, if you think of it as progressing over time, 
you have to have that culture to get started. But once you start and you reach some critical mass, then, you know, it kind of feeds on itself and grows exponentially. And that we've seen in pretty much all the uh, organizations that were able to leverage this notion of digital transformation to the maximum extent possible. So, yes, yeah, so what you're talking about, really about potential resistance to change, that's mm-hmm. another term for it, attitude, you know, culture or, or receptive culture, is, is certainly real. And it's certainly something that has to be managed. Uh, and that's why I emphasized at the beginning that digital transformation is not just about the technology. Because if it is just about the technology, then in my opinion, it's doomed to fail. The, the people aspect, the process aspects are, are key, if for anything else, to deal with, with the exact phenomena that you were just describing. Because that's all people skill. That's mm-hmm. all change management. Mm-hmm. And change is inevitable. Well, that's the name of the game. By definition, digital transformation is all about change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you prepare people or like our students for this kind of constant cycle of change? And as you mentioned earlier, positions that maybe don't exist yet, but could in the future. So one one aspect, uh, obviously, you know, in an organizational context, is communication. Yeah, so so communication goes actually a very long way. For example, to diffuse, if you will, any concern about, for example, jobs, because that's really the first thing. So once you start talking about digital transformation, leveraging technology, and so forth, the first thing that comes to mind from an employee perspective is, will I lose my job? How will this affect my job? Communication, gradual onboarding. Um, many successful companies actually also approach it in, a, in kind of a piecemeal. So as, as opposed to uh, what we call a big bang approach. In other words, okay, well, digitize everything in the company. Uh, that could be very costly and very hard to manage and very disruptive to the business, to the people, and so forth. So a gradual, what you call small wins. So you you get these small wins so that everybody kind of feels on board. They could see what technology could do to the business, to their work, okay, and gradually buy into it. So employee buy-in from the bottom up is really critical for such transformations. As far as students, I would say for, for us here at DSU, we're really uniquely positioned to prepare students to be part of digital transformation efforts, regardless of their interests. In other words, we have highly technical programs, mm-hmm. okay, uh, but we also have uh, non-technical programs uh, that that could help, for example, with with change management, okay, or with serving as a liaison between the business functions and the technology. And we have programs that are right in the middle, right? So like the CIS program, so students get exposed to some business domain knowledge, but also technology and how to leverage technology to advance business functions. So you get so the, the business focus, the humanities focus, you get the highly technical focus, and you also get uh, you know somewhere in between 
that can maybe bridge and help um, the communication channels, if you will, between the application domain and the technology uh, that would enable that. What's interesting about Dakota State University is they accept that change is inevitable, that, that, and we've got to stay on top of it. We don't like it. We don't always enjoy it. But, you know, Google comes out with Google Docs and has certain features that Microsoft Word doesn't. And then Microsoft Word all of a sudden tries to catch up and they develop things. I think it's a healthy attitude that we have here at Dakota State University about change, for the uh, most know, part. I would certainly agree. I, I'm pretty sure you remember, like, you know, the mission changed back in 1984. Mm -hmm. Here at DSU, it was all about change. Mm -hmm. And DSU embraced that big time. And this is what got us where we are right now. And we continue to evolve our programs, you know, from undergraduate, very diversified portfolio of undergraduate programs that really speaks to uh, needs of employers, uh, needs even or expectations about future jobs, mm -hmm. stuff we're talking about. That's right. But also master degree programs, uh, even PhD programs that, you know, I don't know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, maybe <laughs> unheard of. Certainly on this campus. Certainly, yes. And, yeah. uh, but it, it's just a testimony of how nimble and agile uh, this institution is and how open it is to change. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that's being part of the culture uh, also impacts students and, and their view of change throughout their education and then moving beyond. And how important would you say that culture is in preparing people to deal with inevitable change? Well, I think it's not. Uh, it's it's the culture, and it's also the uh, nature of the programs. In other words, it, it provides our students with a foundation. The general education piece is a big part of that, and then the the, the courses and how each of the, our programs are designed uh, provides students with core knowledge, if you will. Uh, that would essentially propel them through a lifelong career of learning and contribution and ability to adapt to, uh, to change. And I think these are characteristics of any healthy, solid educational program. So in other words, we're not teaching technical skills in the sense of, well, how do you do... X, Y, and Z, that's, that's the role of other kinds of schools, but, but not DSU. So in other words, the kind of knowledge that you get are, are lifelong, are timeless, um, as opposed to skills with a specific technology that might be obsolete by the time students graduate. That's a differentiating characteristic of the kind of education experience our students get here at DSU versus elsewhere. You're right. I think uh, having an attitude and openness uh, about change is very critical to success. But I also think the reason why change is so difficult is we're not convinced it's going to take us to a better place. It, fe it feels like a bit of a gamble, you know, um, where there's, there's a lot of uncertainty. And is it really going to improve the situation or is it just going to make things more complicated? But I think 
I would add to what you said, and I couldn't agree with you more, that the opportunities that students here at DSU have with technology and seeing how um, change happens and the experience they get, um, they recognize that they can manage it. They, they can uh, not let events dictate what happens. They can, in part, not totally, but they can, in part, help determine the outcome if they make a change. Absolutely, yes. And, and I think, you know, when we talk about change, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head here when you mentioned uncertainty. And that's mm -hmm. what we see, and that's what research tells us when it comes to, well, how do you navigate resistance to change and, and what instigate that kind of resistance and so forth. So if you want to boil it down into one word, it's uncertainty about the future. And that's where sometimes these incremental approaches comes in. You know, I teach now or, or will be offering a course called uh, Design Thinking in the summer. And it's really uh, a mindset and, and a process to navigate, if you will, not necessarily uh, change, but coming up with innovations, okay, that, that would respond to some genuine human need, if you will, or mm -hmm. problem, mm -hmm. okay? And design thinking have been associated quite a bit with the notion of digital transformation, um, innovation, um, uh, leverage of technology, again, for innovating or for improving human lives, which is really about what we're talking about here. And some of the key elements and characteristics of design thinking in, in reference to what we're talking about here, change and mitigating the um, resistance to change and, and, and concern about uncertainty and so forth, is uh, at least uh, two items maybe I'm going to share with them. One is this notion of empathizing with the user, right? So understanding what their needs are. And so th this is, again, coming and speaking to people, Mm -hmm. as an integral part of the process. So we're not just, again, talking about technology. The technology, right. Okay, so, so that uh, the notion of uh, empathy and empathizing with users and then using that knowledge to really revisit what the issue, the underlying on, or the problem is to come up with potential uh, solutions, okay? But... Equally important is when coming up with potential solutions, that's the ideation piece of design thinking, is to follow that with prototyping, kind of incrementally testing ideas for that solution. And in doing that, you're actually mitigating the uncertainty that is associated with trying very new, untested ideas that inherently create this level of anxiety uh, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the uncertainty surrounding it. So you're gradually trying to mitigate that in, in an incremental, uh, but in rapid succession, right. to, to reach to your, the ultimate um, outcome, which is solving that problem in a manner that resonates with the intended user in the larger context. In other words, managing all stakeholders' needs and interests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how would you say digital transformation and 
the work that goes into it kind of impacts these advancements that we make in society? Well, I think uh, digital transformation is at the heart of advancements that we're seeing right now in society. Think, you know, healthcare, for example. So in the in the in the two thousands, uh, if you remember, there were a big push towards electronic medical records. Yes. In a sense, that is a digital transformation initiative. It is painful. Some folks might argue it is still painful, <laughs> even that we're at least fifteen years or more into into that, give or take, depending on on the organization. But you could arguably say that it also transformed healthcare. And it also enabled things that were not there before. So right now you can go online, for example, and get immediate access to your labs. Okay, there is more work now that being done into data exchange. So if, if you change providers or whatever, access mm -hmm. to that data, that until recently has still been an issue and there are still kinks to be resolved. But once you have uh, the digital, if you will, um, or the cyber ecosystem in place, uh, you're gradually enabling things that could not have happened before, like access to your own medical data and, and so forth. Uh, there are other things obviously happening on the clinical side. We talked about uh, imaging and image recognition and computer vision and, and so forth that, impacted, that impacts the uh, radiology, if you will, robotics, if you will, and how it impacts surgery. And that's just talking about healthcare. And AI has some actually big applications there too. But uh, we could actually shift to customer support. Um, again, some of our experiences might have been a little frustrating, but technology is evolving. Things are what, and what I'm referring to really are these virtual chatbots, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when you go in and for customer service and, and stuff like that, and then eventually it's like, okay, well, just get me a real person, right? <laughs> but but the fact of the matter is that that, that is really state of the art uh, uh, technology falls under the AI umbrella, uh, and it is evolving dramatically. And think of virtual assistants, Siri and Alexa. Again, these are examples of such technology that are transforming how we do things. Blockchain, in, in, in a matter, and it is actually making great strides right now with um, supporting supply chain management. And we all know about how supply chains were severely impacted because of mm -hmm. COVID. Some companies were ahead of the curve and or have already had uh, or leveraged supply, uh, blockchain technology to manage their supply chain. Mm. Um, so they were a little ahead, but right now, with everything going on, there's more and more companies trying to capitalize on that. And the and, and reason I mentioned supply chain in the context of blockchain is that it's one of the uh, success stories, if you will. Because again, blockchain is still an emerging technology. People are still exploring what it is good for, what it's not good for, and so forth. But supply chain was one that at least uh, there were some proven successes there. And then there are also things really in the back end that uh, we don't necessarily as consumers or individuals feel about, or at least in, in a direct way. And um, that has to do with the development and deployment of software. So for us in, in the IT world, 
uh, we hear about and we talk about uh, what we call uh, microservices and containers and DevOps. And without necessarily going into the details, what, what these technologies provide is quite a bit of agility and scalability and resilience to the pipeline and the cycle of developing software that, again, serves a purpose or solves a problem or a human need, but also deploying that software, making it available to to the end user. And these technologies, what I didn't say, are very compatible with with the cloud, which we hear about. And, And that has been an instigator and a catalyst for a lot of the agility that we see. And I'll just give you a concrete example here. So think of how COVID disrupted everything, right? And even before COVID, a company like Best Buy, which I'm pretty sure we all kind of like to shop there, um, had to answer a big question, and that is, how can they remain in business as a brick-and-mortar electronics Mm -hmm. store in light of you can buy anything electronic online, right? And they started dabbling with the idea of creating an online store, but leveraging their physical store for people to shop around, but also to order online and pick up at the store. And to be able to test those business models and implement them, you have to be very agile with respect to your software development and deployment processes. And some of the developments that we don't really uh, deal with on, on a first-hand basis, like the stuff that I talked about, enable that. And once you have that in place, they were able to test it very quickly on three stores and then grew that model right before COVID hit. So Best Buy was actually one of the companies that was essentially best prepared to handle COVID. But then think of other companies that were able still to catch up because they had that infrastructure as part of their digital transformation effort, uh, like grocery stores, you know, Sam's, Walmart, whatever, where you could actually shop online and have your stuff packed and ready to go and you just go in and park your car and and, and somebody will bring this stuff to you and off you go. So all of that is really enabled by various technologies, if you will, and is, are all part of this notion of digital transformation. So what do you see for the future? What are you excited about for the future? Well, if you know me, I'm excited about technology, right? So, so I am always excited to see what's really the next frontier? What what really is the next application that um, technology would help make better, if you will? The sky is really the limit when you think about it. Uh, there is always something new. And that's really where I kind of keep encouraging students um, and my students to kind of continue to explore, uh, whether in, in, in classes or outside classes. Uh, The nice thing about the era that we're living with is that you could try new things very quickly and you can, 
what you call uh, in startup terminology, fail fast, right? So you can fail fast, but you don't have to worry about it because you can, you know, uh, pick yourself up again and try something else. And there is so much out there in terms of um, uh, building blocks, okay? So I think the technology has evolved that it's, it's more like a Lego now. So, so if you're interested in machine learning and AI, there is so much software that you don't necessarily have to be an AI expert or, or a math whiz to be able to write AI algorithms. Many of those are already out there. Hmm. Okay? Wow. Entire networks, uh, CNA, convolutional neural networks, for example, are already out there to do some facial recognition. So I can actually have a student you know, come in and use that code already and create a facial recognition software. So imagine how would that enable innovation. So the, the facial recognition part could be just a, a small piece of a larger innovation mm-hmm. that solves a particular problem. Uh, so, so that's what I mean by building blocks. And I use the facial recognition because I know very well that 10, 15 years ago, uh, this is, was entirely out of reach of mainstream. You, you have to really have huge resources to come up with such applications that are meaningful and useful. Now you can get those off the shelf, plug them with other stuff, and create some new things. The bar is kind of lower now in terms of what you can do or what one could do with technology. Hmm. I, I think... The challenge is is the mindset. That's why I, I'm I'm always intrigued with this notion of design thinking and other approaches that would stimulate creativity and innovation. Because if you can come up with the right idea, the the technology is a good chance is is there or the building blocks of that is there. There are certainly work that is still going on and will continue to go on that's really the engine of innovation is to develop those technologies but the availability and access to it is really very different than it used to be very exciting and fascinating topic Mm -hmm. well i want to thank you for being our guest today omar uh thank you to our podcast producer xander morrison and thank you for listening If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and rate. Thank you.